Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopia and dystopia. My name is Paul. Today we're going to be talking about Dracula uh, and a bit about vampires more generally. Um, So we're going to be focusing in on Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola film from 1992, and talking a bit about um, the original novel as well from 1897. We're going to be talking about those things, obviously, in relation to utopia and utopianism. Something I quickly wanted to tell you about before we get to that. Um, So I was thinking about, obviously you always know I I say quite often, like I'd like to try and get episodes out more regularly. Um, Sometimes I manage to do that, sometimes I don't. Um, It's obviously a thing connected to time and money. But but something I realised the other day is that if everyone that was listening to the show could give me $1 a month, that would completely transform what I'd be able to do with this show. Um, obviously, I've got the Patreon already at patreon.com slash Utopian Horizons. Um, and there are some people who, who very kindly support me there. And I, I kind of always mention like the, the 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 $5 tier or whatever, which gets you access to bonus episodes and stuff. But yeah, I just thought... Um, yeah, actually, if just lots of people gave me one dollar, that would also like that would make a huge difference. Um, it would complete, as like I say, it would completely transform what I'd be able to do with the show. Um, so I always thought, right, that it, you could always Patreon makes it easy to like adjust like your tier or how much you want to give or whatever. I don't know how, how easy it actually makes it in practice. I'm just going to put a one dollar tier on there to make it easy. So. Um, yeah, obviously not everyone can can support and stuff like that, but I just thought I'd mention because people might not think people might think like, oh, that doesn't make a difference or whatever. But like I say, there's enough people that listen to the show that one dollar from everyone would be transformative, and I could put way more time into this show. So yeah, I just wanted to say that I'd really appreciate it if you that's like you might just consider. So yeah, Patreon.com/slash Utopian Horizons. A little bit from everybody chipping in would would uh, be incredible. But anyway, that was just a thought that came to my mind when I was uh, thinking about how to how I could kind of uh, get spend more time with the podcast, basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now I'm going to ask you for money again. Uh, as you listen to this, I don't know exactly when this is going to come out, but there'll be not much time left on the Kickstarter that I currently have running which is for a book called Object Oriented, which is about um, objects in video games. So chapters on like keys, maps, swords, drugs, food, etc., etc. Asking questions like, uh, why is meat always top tier when it comes to regaining health in video games? What does Agent 47's use of disguise tell us about the symbolic power of clothes? All these kind of interesting questions. So, um, yeah, I'd really appreciate people checking that out. Uh, I'll put the link for the Kickstarter in the description. And very finally, I did a bunch of... I've done quite a few guest appearances recently, um, primarily because I was trying to 
promo the Kickstarter, which uh, at the time of speaking, looks like it's not going to make it over the line. So that's why I'm plugging it again. I'm just uh, holding out some hope that it might get there. But uh, yeah, it doesn't, I'm not sure it looks great at the moment, but but what are you going to do? So yeah, um, I recently appeared on No Cartridge, uh, the video games podcast, talking about objects and video games. Um, so that's one to check out. I also talked, I also went on a Podside Picnic to talk about The Running Man, the um, film with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I appeared as one of the guests on an ep- recent episode of Imagined Worlds talking about Disco Elysium. So yeah, I just wanted to point you to those uh, appearances if you if you uh, fancied checking those out. Might be something that you're interested in. I don't know. So that's all that stuff out of the way. Um, my guest for this episode to talk with me about Dracula is Katie Stone, who's a PhD student at Birkbeck. Katie is a good person to follow if you're interested in science fiction. Uh, her her Twitter is cyborg underscore feminist because um, she always like she always does like tweet threads for science fiction conferences and stuff. So, for example, the episode I did on Predator Two and Demolition Man was directly came from seeing a tweet thread of hers about a conference and finding out um about that so that's that's where that came from so i'd follow her on twitter if you're into science fiction but yeah anyway katie has some very interesting ideas about dracula and vampires and utopia so that's what we're going to be talking about of course uh as normal i'll be back at the end to give you some uh contact details and stuff if you want to get in touch with me but um yeah for now i'll leave you with uh my conversation with katie joining me now is katie stone she is a phd student at birkbeck thank you very much for joining me katie thank you for having me so katie has come on to talk about vampires and more specifically dracula and the relationship of those things to utopia um, which may seem like a, a slightly unusual combination, but, but we'll get into why those those things uh, might make sense uh, as we get into this conversation. So more specifically, we're going to be talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula, the 1992 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Um, we may also be switching a bit uh, into talking about the, the novel that is based on Dracula as well uh, from 1897. Um, so... Katie, first of all, given that uh, you're going to be talking about vampires in, in relation to Utopia and that this is kind of being presented as a, a counter-reading to the way that Dracula or vampires in general have have traditionally been read, I think it would be helpful um, for listeners who, who might not be aware if you could kind of um, give us, a first of all, an explanation of what the kind of traditional reading of, of vampires or, or, and Dracula and how they've been interpreted is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think within a kind of Marxist framework, I guess, the traditional reading of Vampire does stem back to to Marx's own writing about um, In Capital, where he writes about capital being um, dead labour that vampire-like only lives by sucking living labour and lives the more, the more labour it sucks. So you have this kind of 
um, original image there of of the vampire as um, what Steve Shaviro calls a capitalist monster. Um, mm-hmm. So vampirism is kind of directly associated there um, with with capital um, and with um, a kind of particularly uh, a particularly violent, directly exploitative version of capital, um, where the capitalist is figured as as the person who who doesn't work themselves and and feeds on the the blood of others the work of others in a way that's like expressly violent and often deadly um and i think that that's that's what people have have taken up and also read in relation to um bram stoker's work and the the kind of iconic figure of count dracula um very much uh fits into that image um, obviously, it's quite complicated because the vampire is also aristocratic, so it's not straightforwardly the vampire isn't straightforwardly a capitalist in mm. that he's he's a count, right? He's pre-capitalist in in mm. certain ways. But what Marx says, which I think is is really interesting, is that um, the reason that you have this this kind of aristocrat as the figure of capital, what's a useful figure, is what he says is that the the violence um, that aristocrats would had the power to um, occasionally and kind of uh, sort of randomly, according to their own whims, meet out onto their peasants. So the idea that they could um, just be uh, violent in this kind of uncontrolled way, um, that violence is codified under capital. So it doesn't go away because you have the absence of these lords who could literally do what they wanted with their peasants. Mm. Um, Instead, it gets like, yeah calculated into the system um so that even if you don't have a boss who is literally uh like a vampire who is who is literally a, a violent uh meeting out bloody violence onto their workers still this violence is taking place it's just kind of uh more subtle and less of a and his example of the the aristocrat who who does this random violence that's codified under capital is what he calls the Wallachian Boyar, who is, um, Richard Walker argues in his article, is uh, Vlad the Impaler, who is a kind of a key, a key proto-vampiric figure. Yeah. So in terms of that figure of the aristocrat um, and the potential relationship of that figure to, to the idea of of work and parasitism and all this all this stuff now so that would that would seem to to fit with the kind of um with what we get in in this film we're talking about and and the novel as well um we get an an aristocrat i suppose i only just thought of this as i'm kind of talking (laughs) kind of like two almost two versions of an aristocrat in the film i think like a very uh the initial time we see Dracula as a very old man in his castle where he's very much connected to as like an old world figure like a an old world aristocrat and then we see him uh, in his in his younger um version once he's um sucked a bit of blood <laughs> regenerated a bit um as a kind of Victorian dandy in in very kind of fashionable uh, fine clothes yeah. So no, this kind exactly. of fits. This would seem to fit with with the idea of 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 the of, of what we're talking about, like the vampire as a as a as a parasite. So so how do you kind of read that figure? Uh, I guess in the film and the and the novel. I mean, I think you're definitely right about um, that 
that presentation in the film I hadn't thought about that either as well but yeah a key thing that happens in Dracula is that he becomes young again when he comes to London I think there is the idea that we're taking this this old world aristocratic exploitation and we're updating it and we're bringing it to new modern Victorian London um, and that is explicitly one of um, Jonathan Harker's great fears that's what he so there's a scene that I um uh, that I really focus on in in kind of my reading of Dracula, um, which is where Harker is in the the Count's castle, and he um, looks down at the Count in his coffin. He's kind of found his way into um, Dracula's bedchamber, um, and there's a coffin there rather than a bed, and he sees the Count um, covered with covered with blood, obvious sleeping, um, and obviously having having fed upon someone. Um, and he's kind of incredibly revolted by this image. And he he sees and he's terrified that not only is Dracula going to feed on him, but also he's a he's a kind of real estate. He's becoming a real estate mogul. Dracula is. He's bought up all this property in England. And so Harker is terrified that now um, he's going to come to London and he's like, this is what he's like here in Transylvania, where there are only a few people to feed upon, but think what he'll be like in the industrialized city, which I think is that motion that um, Mark saw, you know, think about the violence that uh, the the aristocrat um, could do with all of these people in this really intensely um, concentrated um, city. So yeah, basically, I mean, it does it does kind of exactly fit onto that, and and critics have have noted this that the, the vampirism and capitalism um, kind of mirror one another um, in mm. their development, and I think that 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 is there. I don't I don't kind of challenge that that is that is one of the things that's happening um, when we talk about the vampire, but I also think that there are there are kind of other possibilities um, to be drawn out of it, and I think for me it started off when I was thinking about this idea of hunger, that one of the key things that vampires are associated with, that vampirism is associated with, is the idea that the that the vampire is always hungry and desperately needs to feed, has this kind of um, greed. And obviously, in, in some ways, that tracks directly onto the idea of capitalist consumption. You know, capital endlessly consumes, it's never satiated. But also, I think it... it it demonstrated to me that there's also the hunger of the hungry, that the, the person who is actually hungry um, is not the capitalist. He doesn't feed because they're hungry, um, doesn't mm-hmm. feed in response to need. Um, that actually uh, that those who are hungry are those who are poor, who don't have enough to eat. Um, and I kind of got thinking about this because I work a lot in my in my thesis is about um, the the utopian philosophy of Ernst Bloch, who's a Marxist philosopher, and he writes about hunger as being this really important utopian drive. He calls it an expectant emotion and connects it to the idea of hope. Um, and what he says is that in psychoanalysis, hunger is the drive that gets left out. Um, that Freud doesn't think about hunger enough. And he says Freud doesn't think about hunger enough because Freud's patients are bourgeois and so they're not hungry. Then that they, they don't have this driving need um, which people living in poverty have. So for Bloch, a really important utopian emotion, I guess, or utopian feeling um, is hunger, both in terms of the need for material sustenance, food, care, um, 
but also in terms of this idea of the hunger for something better, something that you're not getting in your life as you live it now. Um, and so he sees that as a kind of crucial utopian thing. And so I was thinking about why why you would use the vampire as this um, figure of capital and how in some ways it, it fits neatly, neatly, as we've discussed, but also that there's this kind of gap in terms of that the vampire is, is also hungry um, and that that hunger connects them not only to the capitalist, uh, but also all those other people who who are hungry and also who don't work. Um, and that was kind of another mm. important part of it for me, the idea that partly why Harker is so disgusted when he when he looks at the count and sees how well he is fed is because he hasn't worked for that food. He he demands to be fed while refusing to work. And again, that, that fits onto the kind of the idea of the capitalist who, who hasn't earned their food, they've just fed on the bodies of others. Um, but it also obviously connects the vampire potentially to everyone else who doesn't work, who can't work, who refuses to work. Um, so for me, that was a kind of another way into the possible utopianism of vampirism. Um, there's, I don't know whether you've read it, but Kathy Weeks um, wrote a book called The Problem With Work. Um, no, which it, but... is oh, it's really good, and it's a it is a kind of a utopian utopian specifically utopian view of work and the idea of being anti work. Um, mm-hmm. So what Kathy Weeks says is that there's a there's a problem um, with a certain kind of strand of Marxist thought um, which valorizes labor. So she talks about the line that I mentioned at the start, the idea of dead labor sucking on living labor and she talks about the problem with living labor as a concept and she says in in an effort to defend workers and say workers deserve more they deserve dignity they deserve respect they deserve um, remuneration for for the work that they do they deserve to live um there's if you focus on their labor the labor that they do you say so the capitalist is lazy the capitalist is idle and does not work but the worker does and that is why the worker deserves more. Um, and Cathy Weeks says there's this big danger with that because that really is a capitalist logic, the idea that you only deserve things to the extent that you've worked for them. Um, and so kind of that there's a there's a strand, I guess, of a worker-centred Marxist politics or anti-capitalist politics um, where the the working classes are are valued insofar as they work only to the extent that they kind of prove themselves to be deserving through work and that this cuts out kind of vast swathes of the the population both kind of the unemployed the always the always unemployed but also um reproductive labor is often not kind of categorized as work in this so the worker becomes kind of the working man um rather than everyone else who who reproduces and sustains life in different ways um so yeah i thought that that was a kind of another important part of the puzzle is that there's the problem where if you say look at the capitalist he's so lazy he doesn't work enough what you're saying is that people should only deserve only deserve to live um to the extent that they work and they earn their way um so i thought that that was a kind of an important strand um of this as well 
And I guess attached to that is this idea um, that I also bring out of dependence. So the idea that the vampire needs to feed, he relies upon the body of others um, to sustain him. And I would say that that's, that's true really of everybody, <laughs> that everybody relies upon one another, that maybe in saying, in opposing the vampire to this kind of hardworking, self-sufficient person who doesn't have any demands, who isn't who isn't hungry or idle or dependent, um, you risk um, erasing the fact uh, that we all variously kind of dependent on one another, and that those dependencies are often kind of painful and messy and bloody and violent, um, and that doesn't make them okay that isn't to to excuse them but it is to I think find a different way of of talking about them and working out how we can how we can grapple with them um yeah yeah no that um that makes a lot of sense and um certainly there's this um obviously within like if you think of the tradition of of Marxism like like you said it's it's kind of defined but to an extent by the I by the idea of like the worker like being a worker um that's so tied up uh in the in the history of marxism and as you say there's definitely a, a danger there that you you then you then tie um the idea of of worthiness as like a human being or something to to work and you can see that not just within that tradition of marxism you see that across society in in terms of like hostility to um people who rely on benefits for example um that's that's certainly not not something that that uh that is like a that's connected to a marxist tradition or something that's that's something that you, you see across society this this real hostility for people um who don't who don't work and i think you you you're the kind of the way you've you've uh kind of zeroed in on this idea of of um some of the What's seen as being monstrous about the vampire is is uh, its idleness and and his ability to 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 not do work, and you you see that kind of of envy in the way that people, in the way that the the, the press, for example, constructed the idea of like the benefit cheat, like yeah. what people hate about people, the idea of people being on benefits is that they're enjoying their life without working. Like that's why they want people on benefits to be punished. That's why they want them to get. That's why they want them to get the. To, they want them to struggle. Like there's this. There's this envy of the idea of somebody living or being happy and not working, which connects to the to the to this figure of the vampire. Like so, like in like in the film, for example, like Dracula is. Um, as much as we see what he's up to, he's going to dinners with Mina, and he's going dancing or he takes it to the cinema like he's he has a he's a has a complete a complete uh life of leisure so yeah i think there's a a connection there and i think there's a a danger as you've as you said with of us ourselves like connecting our, our value as as human beings to our pro- to productivity to our ability to work um yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. I just I just think that there's a there's a way in which the the kind of rightful um anger and indignation at the kind of the exploitation of capital and the the fact that what is bad about the capitalist is that they are um 
that they are living off the labor of others that that ends up getting wrapped up into an idea of oh well what's bad about them is that they're not working for themselves they're not self-sustaining um Mm. and that's what they should be like um rather than saying what's bad about them is the the violence that they're doing to other people in order to get this this life um but that it's not the leisure it's not the idleness um that is that is should be reprehensible to us i think um and yeah so absolutely i mean in the film you have the the kind of the great uh the great luxury of dracula's life both in terms of his uh kind of transylvanian um the kind of the grand trains and the beautiful fabrics um mm. that are everywhere in, in transylvania in this film um but also, as you say, in terms of uh, he's very much associated with with leisure. We're just kind of wandering the streets of London and going to see the new cinematograph, and and um, while everyone else is industriously working away. Um, so yeah, that's definitely something I think uh, Francis Ford Coppola really leans into why you might want this life, and he adds a lot of that to to Stoker, who I think is more. Um, more horrified, I guess, in the in the face of Dracula, and less uh, frank about the possible appeal of of Dracula's of Dracula's lifestyle, and indeed of of Dracula himself. Mm. Could you, do, you 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 did mention this a bit, but I just wondered if you could just talk about it a bit more. I know, I know you had this this thing of the, of the vampire. You, you called it like um. So in the essay of yours that I read, uh, mm. a, a, go, a ghost of need for care. Could you just explain a bit more about? Yeah, absolutely. I I think I was I was just thinking that that's something that I slightly missed out. Um, yeah. So this is uh Leia Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasin has phrased. She wrote a book called Care Work, um, uh, and in that, um, what's what's written about is the idea of uh yeah this idea of the ghost of the need for care which is um she's talking about disability and disability justice um and the idea uh that what people um what people fear when they see disabled lives and disabled communities um are that they too will one day need to be cared for in a in a more direct way than they are now that their that their ableness is is always going to be temporary um that at some point we will all need care um and that that is kind of horrifying um and also very enticing you know the idea that at some point maybe someone will care for you um and it's kind of terrifying to be dependent upon other people and Mm. upon their care work but it's also uh kind of wonderful given how you know how much a crisis of care there is living under capitalism how little care is often available um so she she kind of talks about this double this double pull um and i think that that is something that that dracula um offers as well in his um maybe particularly in this film when he's old at the start right he's kind of old and wizened um and made to look frightening uh, because he's so so pale and um, and so uh, apparently infirm. I mean, he gets he gets around, but um, I think that there's a sense of look how monstrous he is because he's old. And but mm. everyone will age, 
apart from possibly Dracula, whose age is age is temporary, um, who can who can get young again. Um, so yeah, I think that that's an important part of the puzzle. Obviously, disability plays an important part as well in terms of this formulating this anti-work politics, finding a way for um, people whose whose bodies refuse to fit into this kind of productivist model where your your worth is defined by how much you can produce. Um, and yeah, I think it's a very important part of any kind of Marxist politics to to grapple with with people who will never fit into the model the model worker. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah, and and like as you suggested, to kind of I guess um, yeah, get to kind of reignite that idea that part of what we should be striving for politically is to do less work. <laughs> like that's fine. Yeah. Like yeah. it's not that we get rid of this idea that there's some moral moral like you gain some moral um credibility or something by doing lots of work like part of the tradition of the left has been to reduce the amount of time that we work um and yeah we 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 should definitely keep doing that (laughs) um um so this is something that that um i don't think you particularly touched on in in the essays of your years i read but something that after watching this film has to be talked about which is which is uh the, the kind of relationships between vampires and sexuality so one of the other kind of quite common um interpretations of vampires has been this idea that that the vampires some kind of of the act of vampirism is some kind of metaphor for for some kind of sexual activity that is about like venereal disease or it's about the sexual desire of women or something like this is quite again quite an established way of of looking at at vampires um i just wondered if that in any way plays into how you read this film or or vampires in general because yeah for anyone who hasn't seen this this is a very uh horny interpretation (laughs) of of dracula um it made me think um i don't know how i mean being that what we've just talked about this idea that there's some kind of hidden metaphor for sexuality this film made me think of the the garth merengue line i know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards because (laughs) it's just yeah from from the beginning there's there's a lot of um horniness in this film so yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think that so people people have written a lot about about sexuality and vampirism um um and obviously there's a kind of this eroticization of feeding is like a really important a really important part of of what dracula does uh that he that he breaks into the the bedrooms of of young in in stoker's novel more so he's he's he doesn't break in so much in the films as he lures them out which is quite interesting um but he but yeah absolutely he he feeds on people in a way that is like directly directly sexualized as you say in this film there is no question (laughs) it is like like francis ford coppola is like i've heard that vampirism is sometimes a metaphor for sex let's take out that metaphor bit i don't think we need it (laughs) um yeah so um 
so that's like absolutely a really important part of of what the vampire is like and i think um one of the one of the things i found kind of useful thinking about um vampirism is uh audrey lord's essay uses of the erotic um where she has a kind of expanded understanding of what the erotic is it isn't just sex it is about a kind of wider understanding of pleasure um and she talks about this she doesn't obviously she doesn't use the terminology of anti-work but she talks about this idea of finding ways in your life um to create pleasure against work against capital uh Mm. so she talks about capitalism as a system which is um designed not in response to human need but making work a travesty of necessities um which is a phrase i really like and i think that um there's something there's something about the vampire as well part of his leisure part of his idleness um is also his ability to indulge so you see this in the film where you have um the count is able to woo mina seduce her um Mm. Because he's just got nothing else to do, you know. He can just wander around all day, taking her to fairs and stuff. Mm. <laughs> um, and and I think that that is an important part of the way that both the the form that the hunger takes that it's not just a literal um, hunger for food that it has this sexual component and potentially a component for connection, um, but also also yeah that it just it just frees him up for this. And I think there's a kind of there's a crucial scene um, to me is seen both in the book and in this film, which is where where Mina feeds on Dracula's blood. And there's the idea that that's how you become a vampire. Um, and obviously this kind of complicates the, the metaphor um, that we talked about at the start of the vampire as the capitalist monster, because here the vampire isn't feeding on the young woman or, or the worker indeed, but the, um, but it's the woman or the worker who is feeding upon the vampire you know she's gaining sustenance from this from this interaction so you have this question about um whether the vampire is a parasite um or whether that parasitism is always kind of symbiotic you're always giving something back because there's no way to just take in this kind of um yeah quite messy bloody process there's always going to be a certain kind of exchange um and in the film, in the book, there's still a question about whether Mina wanted to do this. Um, the idea of, is she hypnotized? Is she entranced in some way? What is mm. her level of um, a kind of, I guess, ability to consent in this in this dynamic? There's lots of emphasis on the idea that uh, she's described as, the scene is described as um, Dracula, uh, holding her head to his to his breast where she feeds as being like he's a child and she's a kitten and she's he's holding her head down in a in a saucer of milk um but this is always this is i think this is a kind of nervous description on the part of the men who are kind of horrified watching on um in that obviously what they actually resemble in a straightforward way is that he's like a breastfeeding mother um she's you know she's drinking from his breast um mm. and so there's there is this question of ha- to to what extent can you force someone to to feed in this way what might be she be getting in return and i found um recently i i just returning to the the book but in in the film 
they dramatize this scene right her and dracula are having a conversation and mina's like no i want to do this and he's yeah. like you can't possibly say you don't know what you're saying you can't possibly say you want to do this and she says she can so it's a really vexed question of um you know the kind of the power relation between them but there's a great bit in the in the book where mina's recounting something that dracula has said to her um and he says um that uh you are now to me flesh of my flesh blood of my blood kin of my kin my bountiful wine press for a while and shall be later on my companion and my helper you shall be avenged in turn for not one of them but shall minister to your needs um so there's this idea both that they're joined together now that they're they've kind of become uh become joined in this act which is again is not quite like the the kind of predatory outsider capitalist feeding on on the worker that they are blood of blood um but also there's this idea that uh mina has been caring for all of these men that she looks after um all of the other all of the other male characters the vampire hunters um in dracula and what what dracula promises her is the idea that she'll be avenged upon them because they will minister to her needs now so it is this idea that maybe vampirism does offer a kind of care and return and i guess in the film you see this more through lucy actually who's i think a more prominent character in the in the film and so she's given much more agency in the film in that she is kind of as you she flirts she's like delighted to kind of be seducing everybody around her in this in this really kind of flamboyant and flagrant way um and that her vampirism seems then like an extension of her previous character rather than a corruption of it or a you know a distortion of what she was like before yeah i think uh i mean i haven't read the book for uh a long time but uh i get the sense dracula is uh bit more sympathetically portrayed in this film and, oh yeah absolutely yeah, <laughs> yeah. and yeah like there's this yeah like you like you said there's this real lack of clarity i think about the extent to which mina might be hypnotized um the extent to which she may have fallen in love with dracula mm-hmm. the i guess like like you suggested to an extent to which there's a question of, of to extent of what um how much agency lucy has as well but yeah and we can see perhaps not intentionally um but you see like she kind of ends up in what it feels like quite a kind of stale and boring relationship with Jonathan <laughs> Harker played by Keanu Reeves um yeah that's right quite a lot of flack for this performance uh I didn't think it was like I didn't think it was good but like I'd heard about this performance for years like as like a, this is the first time I watched this film um and so I was expecting, I don't know, it wasn't good, but like, <laughs> man, loads of bad performances. But anyway, what I've been saying is like, he, he's kind of quite milk toast and uh, boring. And, and then you can kind of see, like, there seemed to be more connection and and love and like passion when she was with Dracula than, than when, she's, when she's with Harker. So there does seem to be like, this idea that maybe like there's a genuine kind of appeal to this yeah like this life of leisure this this um this figure that can that can be a gateway to that um and and she felt kind of more 
there's an extent to which she kind of feels more free and herself when she's with Dracula, I think. Yeah, I think yeah, I think I think that that's true. I think it it's often it's very muffled in the book um because Dracula is kind of more more straightforwardly monstrous. They they definitely portray Dracula much more much more sympathetic. I mean, you get his story really in the yeah. um in the film there's this added backstory, right? That uh his his fiance who exactly resembles Mina, maybe there's some reincarnation going on. Um mm. has uh has kind of un thinking that he, she that he is dead has killed herself and thus has uh and thus has um exiled herself from heaven because she's a she's a suicide and so he who was a great defender of god and a great christian soldier um denounces denounces god um hmm. and and has that big scene at the start where he's in his kind of um like it's like skinless body arm it looks like just muscles um and uh then he like stabs the he stabs the cross which starts bleeding and then he drinks the blood and says the blood is the life which is kind of famous line from dracula but it is interesting i think in that scene i was thinking about it in that he's drinking the blood of christ in some way um Mm. but he's doing it which obviously is part of Catholicism, you know, is part of what you're doing when you're taking communion is meant to be drinking mm. the blood of Christ. So he's almost doing it right, but it's but it's wrong. And I think there's that question with the vampire of in another context, this would be appropriate. So it's it's a bit like the sexuality, but also the feeding. It's like Dracula is doing, for example, breastfeeding Mina in another context that's meant to be the the most uh both the most kind of natural womanly thing that someone can do is be a mother be a gestator a breastfeeding mother mm. and also it has a kind of holy image of of the um, virgin mary and the child mm. and he's doing that but it's he's, he's almost too close to what he should be doing you know mm. it's uh it's the these things that we're that we associate with being good and i think that that's one of the things that vampirism is is really useful for um if we think about it in terms of uh the family as well i mean i talk a lot about my research really is about childhood um mm. and utopianism and how the other the other figure who is who feeds on um the bodies of others is absolutely dependent upon them doesn't work and is always hungry is the child is like Mm. the breastfeeding child and so that the vampire kind of takes what is naturalized within reproductive labor that you will have this small person who will absolutely depend upon you and who you will have to feed um no matter what i think kind of sac no matter the pain that might cause you the sacrifice obviously pregnancy itself is uh is kind of a little bit um it's it's being fed upon by another by another being um and that is naturalized within the family because the family uh, is is kind of a an institution which can reproduce capital and keep the flow of workers coming. But Dracula kind of takes that and he does all of those same things, but because he does them outside of the family, outside of the white Christian family, um, they suddenly are portrayed to be monstrous. So I think he has that kind of really useful estranging effect of saying, look how weird it is. <laughs> that we think that um that we think that pregnancy is is really normal for example we think that breastfeeding is really normal he kind of 
in, in exaggerating it, he he makes it seem strange. And I think the similar thing is going on with that drinking the blood of Christ, but in a bad way, um, which shows you how how strange it is an idea in general. So he's he's suggesting that he he's kind of um, rendered monstrous to an extent because he's he's presenting like a, a threat to the to the idea of to like the traditional idea of of, of family like are you saying like a, a kind of utopian critical potential there in like how we think about family yeah i i that, that's definitely that's definitely what i think so someone whose whose work has been yeah very influential on my thinking um about this is uh sophie lewis who wrote the book full surrogacy now and um i recently got to kind of have a conversation um which is with the at the Burbeck Center for Contemporary Literature. It's recorded if anyone wants to listen to it. Um, but that was specifically about this idea of the family and how the the vampire functions in that. And yeah, precisely, I think that the the vampire in in kind of taking that image of the the breastfeeding mother in in Sophie's book, which is about um, yeah surrogacy and how surrogacy might have a similar function because uh, you have the surrogate, which seems like very uh very unnatural a very kind of uh capitalist um exploitation or perversion of the natural process of gestation normally um and she says that actually what the surrogate reveals is that gestation a is always um kind of in service of capital to the extent that it happens within capital you know that that there is no outside um of this system there only maybe the kind of um the the cracks or moments of of space which we can make within it um that the family isn't outside capitalism basically and i think that that's another problem with the image of the the vampire who comes in and preys upon the the healthy self-sufficient worker is also that often the vampire is figured as this kind of foreign outsider i mean dracula is kind of an illegal immigrant who's smuggled into the country that's a big a big part of what happens in in dracula and he's figured as this this racially othered um, figure it's often coded as um, Jewish I talk about in that essay and Jack Halberstam writes about this the idea of um, the the vampire is is figured as this kind of this miser who bleeds gold um, and uh, it plays into this kind of anti-semitic caricature which plays on the blood libel myth as well the idea of uh, um, sinister Jewish cabals which will steal the blood of children mm. um which is this kind of pervasive, well, in fact, remains within many um, forms of contemporary anti-Semitism, but this pervasive idea of a villainous um, jury, um, that Dracula then becomes the enemy of the family. Um, so he's he's capital, um, but also he's also he's foreign, also he's other, also he's this kind of the as you were saying, like sexually othered figure. Um, and and all of these things. Uh, mean that there's this uneasy alliance between anti-capitalist denunciations of the vampire as capital and this kind of yeah racist, xenophobic, anti-Semitic figuration of the vampire as someone who exists outside of the family um, and who preys upon young women, young white women and children um, because vampire Dracula does like eat babies basically um and and that that kind of image means that he's he's so diametrically opposed then to the family 
which is considered to be if if he's capital then the family is not capital it's outside of capital in some way and so yeah what lots of i guess kind of feminist marxist scholars uh would want to say is that that family is not outside of capital but that families families reproduce um they perform an essential function within capital they are a capitalist um institution so maybe the vampire um helps us helps us to see that in some way by um by yeah doing the things that children do but somehow outside of the places that they should do it not being a child himself it becomes monstrous and then that maybe helps you to see um all of the unpaid unremunerated violent labor for example that is required of um of gestators of breastfeeding um mothers um more generally yeah Yeah, i mean that that um i mean that foreignness you mentioned which are obviously, um, I guess you'd you'd more commonly expect that that kind of uh, xenophobic stuff to be in like vampire texts from the past, but like it's still you can still see that idea in this film. It very clearly like there's a bit when um, when Harker's traveling to Transylvania, he he says he gets the feeling that he's leaving the West and entering the East, um, and that he's yeah. entering like a a wild land like one of the least known bits of europe so there's even in the film this very clear idea of like dracula as being a, a, f- a figure who's if not from the east like on the on the border of of the, of that like he's some kind of foreign invader um and yeah so i get i guess that there's this kind of idea again you're you're as i understand it you're kind of you're suggesting that, that there is like there is value in this idea of reading the vampire through uh, like as a metaphor for capitalism but you're kind of saying you've got to be careful about the way you do that because there's all these other things tied up um in it like the uh, like like um anti-semitism and so forth and this and these ideas of family and that if we you know, don't kind of pull those apart then we kind of um make some incorrect assumptions and mix kind of all kinds of things up together um i guess yeah no exactly exactly right i mean there's uh in uh lee edelman's book no future which is kind of this big um kind of queer theory text and he talks about how there's this there's often a figure of uh, a miser um the idea of the miser someone who hoards their wealth which dracula definitely does mm. dracula um is you know he's living in this castle he's surrounded by all of these riches and he doesn't do anything but with them right he doesn't he doesn't seem to be making a contribution he's only taking um and in the in the novel you have uh dracula's house is literally full of like just old coins everywhere just piles of old coins and he goes out and digs up treasure and then just you know leaves it in a pile um and so there's the idea that he's not doing anything in his wealth. But what Lee Edelman talks about in this book is that often that is becomes a kind of uh, directed attack against queer people who are perceived to be not creating future generations. Mm. So if Dracula had a child and was giving all that wealth to a child, then it would become less sinister, right? People would say, oh, he is doing something, 
with it. He's he's getting this wealth for the good of his children, but that doesn't actually make his wealth any more ethical. You know, if he's giving it to his children, that's just kind of deferring the question. Yeah. Like it's still obviously unethical to be um, to be this wealthy when other people are, are starving. Um, just because you're going to give it to your children, that doesn't make it better. So he kind of makes this connection between there's a certain kind of anti-capitalism. His example is Scrooge, right? Um, from A Christmas mm. Carol and the idea that Scrooge is bad uh, because he hoards his wealth and ref- he doesn't have any children. He refuses to to pass it on and thus keep capital flowing. Um, so it kind of ossifies with him. And so I think that that's, uh, yeah, an important part of unpicking the the ways in which you're objecting to to Dracula, not just along the lines we were saying before of like that he's that he enjoys pleasure and the erotic and leisure um but also uh that it's it's important not to not to locate i guess the violence of capitalism in this idea of hoarding your wealth because often not hoarding it is just passing it on to your children Mm. and that yeah isn't isn't a more ethical relationship to wealth sure um Again, one other thing you've you've touched on a couple of times, but I just wanted to to focus in on is is the is the idea of um, what kind of counts as work, um, and something you mm. you kind of identified was that actually Dracula does do some uh, forms of of labor, which uh, and and yeah, I just wonder if you could talk a bit, a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, I've talked a little bit about the idea of Dracula as the as the breastfeeding mother in this in this particular mm. scene um, with Mina. But also, it's true that he he doesn't have any servants in his castle. That he that he makes the beds. Um, it's a kind of sinister thing that Harker discovers about him is that he has no people to work for him. And in a way, that's I think connected to this idea of the miser, right? That he doesn't that he doesn't pay anyone with his wealth to look after him. Um, but I think also it is about saying that if you're looking at Dracula and you're and you're seeing him make the beds, care for Hark in various ways. Another of the um, ways we might think about like the vampire being sexualized um, is in relation to this idea that he. Uh, that he does, yeah, like he does women's work, he does feminized labor, and also that he, in in kind of caring for Harker, for example, um, he, for example, kind of competes with his brides um, for Harker. He's like, how dare you touch him when you know he's mine? Um, so there's very much this kind of um, homoerotic relationship between Dracula and the men, this fear that um, they will also be fed upon by Dracula um, um, and that this this kind of uh, troubles, again, this idea of the, the heteronormative family, which is meant to be meant to be one man and one woman. Right. And Dracula kind of, uh, yeah, inserts himself into that. Um, in ways which in ways which kind of show that it's a it's a fantasy i mean one of the things i was thinking about when we were talking earlier of um the idea that that lucy her um her vampirism becomes a kind of extension of her her previous self um is that uh there's there's this 
this this is very much something that Coppola plays upon um, in the film and in the book as well. Lucy says to Mina, um, she has all these men vying to marry for her, right? She has this list of suitors and she's kind of like, oh, I really like them all. Yeah. Like, like that's what she says. She says, why, why won't they let a girl marry, marry as many men as, as want her? Or as she wants, you know, that's that seems like that would be great. Mm. Then I wouldn't have to choose. Um, and what happens, obviously, over the course of the, the film is that Dracula is drinking her blood. And so they keep giving her blood transfusions to try and keep her alive. So all of the men who previously wanted to woo her um, end up giving her their blood. And uh, Van Helsing... Um, he very much says, you know, she's she's become a bigamist, a polyandrist, because because she has all of our blood in her veins. Um, and mm. so there is obviously, again, this is this is sexualization, not only of vampiric feeding, but of blood transfusion in this. Um, but I think that that is interesting in that maybe what vampirism does is offer a way for Lucy to kind of live out her her bigamist dreams. Um, and I think mm. that that, uh, that has a kind of way of, um, yeah, exploding the family in some way, I guess, but from the inside. So Dracula then becomes not a kind of predator on the family, a foreign predator from the outside, but he, he kind of enters the family and demonstrates that Lucy always wanted this before she even met Dracula, before she even heard of vampirism, that one of the things he's, he's kind of allowing to happen, um, is to um yeah is to is to give her is to give these people space potentially to live out the things that they that they already wanted to kind of he's responding to the insufficiencies um of the family and at the end of the at the end of the novel um mina has a child um who and she gives the child the names of all of the vampire hunters and there's this sort of idea that like dracula is kind of the absent member of that list um she says that the the child is born on the anniversary of quincy adams who's the only vampire hunter who dies um is born on the anniversary of quincy's death which is also the anniversary of dracula's death so there is this idea that he is kind of living on in the family um in a way that maybe means it's still disturbed even though they kind of are are victorious yeah in, in terms of what 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 Lucy might want and and this kind of idea of threats to heteronormativity and stuff it's interesting as well that there's a very brief moment where Lucy and Mina kiss mm. but it's like it's like it's not something that's that's returned to in the film anyway it's like a, a second like when Dracula's around and there's this kind of like almost dream feel to what's happening um yeah. so yeah that's in there as well um yeah i think we've uh covered uh a lot of ground here um is there is there anything you you think we've we've missed uh that you, that you wanted to to touch on um i think i think you're right i think we have we have talked about uh quite a lot of the these different elements of vampirism i guess i guess it's uh kind of good to say that obviously that there are 
there are so many different kinds of vampires, right? Like that, I, I think Dracula is probably probably still the most kind of famous and iconic. Um, but there are so many different iterations of of the vampire as a myth, and comes from lots of lots of kind of different traditions as well that don't really have Dracula as, as the root. Um, so I think there's there's sort of lots to be gained from thinking about vampirism in um, all of these all of these different. Uh, I was thinking of um, the the text that I kind of compare compare this to in my in my thesis. Are there are these um, short stories? One is uh, called uh, Luella Miller by uh, Mary E. Wilkins Freeman, and another called The Good Lady Duquesne by uh, Mary Elizabeth Braddon, who are kind of Stoker's contemporaries. They're writing at a similar a similar time to him. And in both of those, neither of the, there's two women vampires and neither of them are have supernatural powers of the kind that Dracula has. They don't mm. seem to feed on, on blood in a straightforward way. The good lady Duquesne is just an aristocrat who gets secret blood transfusions from her servants. So she employs this young woman and then steals their blood. Not right. because she's a vampire, but because through through this actual process, and uh, and Luella Miller is is what's called a, a kind of a psychic vampire, in that she just saps the life out of everyone who who works for her or near her. She's not an aristocrat, but you know everyone who cares for her basically ends up dying in this kind of way. It's like she's it's like she's cursed. But I think both of those are interesting examples because both of those kind of put the idea of care like very mm, front yeah. and center in a way that in in Dracula you, you do have to pull it out. And I think they're they're kind of good examples of saying like Luella Miller can't care for herself. When people stop caring for her, she dies. So it's like someone has to die in that in that scenario, right? Like her her need is real, I guess. Um, and with Dracula, you're never really sure because you think maybe he he seems like he could maybe he's immortal, so maybe he could just go on living, not feeding on anyone. So maybe it is just excess. Maybe it's not a kind of legitimate need. But I think those those kind of bring to the fore this idea that. Um, in order to grapple with this this kind of terrible vampiric hunger, this desire for care, um, it can't be via vampire hunting, right? It can't be via um, kind of taking someone that's external to the family and, and rooting them out. Um, it has to be about grappling with how we do, how we care for one another um, and how that's always going to, that's always going to hurt in some ways it doesn't need to hurt in the way it does now under capitalism doesn't need to be kind of individualized and massively you know unevenly distributed uh but it's it kind of needs to be engaged with on that level i think cool um just before we we close off uh if anyone wants to uh hear that talk that katie mentioned about vampires i'll put the link in the description so you can find that um did you want to tell people a bit about uh, Utopian Acts as well? Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, yeah, so I am kind of part of, I guess, we're sort of a research network um, that I started with uh, my friend, Raphael Cabo, and um, we're called uh, Utopian Acts. You can find us on on Twitter or Facebook or whatever under that. Um, and, yeah, we, we kind of organise 
organize events we do that less now because of the pandemic but we have yeah. organized events we have a, a special issue of a journal which is all open access people can read it um we have a zine that we've made you can buy that or just download it on our website and we have a game that we designed um which is called we have the square and it's like a, it's a kind of a role-playing game where you're you're working out if you are if you're occupying a square what would you do and what would be the the compromises and the and the victories that you might be be negotiating there so um yeah so there's just some some kind of utopian resources there for people who are i imagine people who are fans of the show might be interested in some utopian resources <laughs> yeah sure is that game uh did uh, did anna mcfarling get involved in that in some way i just i don't know if you know i just remember her telling me about some utopia game that she <laughs> was involved in playing i don't know um well i mean she may have played it at some point i don't i do know who Anna McFarlane is uh okay. she she wasn't involved in the in the initial thing but maybe it's it's come across her path i don't know okay and maybe it's a different game i don't know yeah it's good if there, it, maybe it's always good if there's lots of utopian games out there um <laughs> okay um well yeah uh Thanks, thanks very much for coming on to talk to me, Katie. It's been, uh, been fun. It was an interesting chat. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. That is the end of my conversation with Katie. Thank you very much for listening. Um, if you are still here listening, then you must be one of the, one of the hardcore. Um, I assume lots of people turn off as soon as the, the chat finishes and don't listen to this end bit, if not before. <laughs> um, but... As one of the hardcore, you, you're most susceptible to me uh, re-emphasizing what I said at the beginning, which is that if everyone that, that listens to the show could uh, contribute one dollar a month to the Patreon, that would make a huge difference to to me and how much time I could put into the show, what I could do with the show. Um, yeah, so consider that patreon.com slash utopian horizons if you want to get in touch with me for whatever reason you can find me on twitter at utopian horizons you can email me on utopian horizons pod at gmail.com uh please consider giving me a rating a review whatever you listen to this on consider the patreon thing check out my kickstarter uh i'll be back soon thank you very much to you for listening and um yeah see you soon bye bye